This is A New Angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back and thanks for tuning in. Today is our September edition of Incentives and Instincts, a recurring series in which I speak to economist and friend Bryce Ward about some of the broader challenges facing our society. Bryce, how are you today? I'm good, Justin. How are you doing? I am good. Good to be back in your normal chair. Yeah. You know, it's school's back. You know, fall is here. Like, uh, you know, it's fun to be on campus when there's lots of students around. It is happening. So we are joined today by my colleague at the College of Business, Professor Eric Guzik. Eric is an expert on creativity and entrepreneurship and recently published a study finding that generative AI can score in the top percentile of creative thinking. Eric, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So we subject all of our guests to this first question, and that is, where did you grow up and what did your parents do? (laughs) Grew up in Massachusetts, and my parents owned a car dealership. So my first memory of working was actually cleaning an AMC Gremlin. And I was about five years old at the time. And I like to say uh, the owners of that new vehicle, I think were so impressed that a five-year-old had cleaned their new car. They paid me with a bag of candy. Was that Wayne and Garth? That <laughs> <laughs> so now, um, I, interestingly, I worked in my UM contract, payment by candy. So that's uh, you know that, that's my compensation. I, I seem, never got over that. You seem like a shrewd negotiator. We're happy to lock <laughs> you in. Before we get into your study, let's just start with general kind of description of what AI is. Like, what is a generative artificial intelligence? What is a large language model? Just maybe put it in language that the average listener can grasp. AI goes back at least 70 years. And officially, one of the first seminars about describing what AI could do was in 1956 at Dartmouth. And in that paper where they described what they were proposing, it was to emulate how we think. So artificial intelligence, that's where that name was coined as part of that proposal for those Dartmouth sessions. So really, it was thinking about how do we emulate and simulate how we humans think. Mm. Now, very specifically in that proposal, they started to talk about problem solving as some of the thinking skills that they would like to emulate. So a lot of that paper and a lot of what AIs try to do in the following 16, 70 years is to simulate human thinking, but for very specific reasons to help solve problems. Interestingly, in that first paper, they do mention creativity and randomness as being a key way that computers could emulate how we solve problems as human beings. So AI, if we go back to some of those first papers, um, it's really simulating problem solving and how we human beings think when we solve problems. Does this have to be done by a machine in this conception? Because I, I sometimes think of capitalism as an AI. Capitalism is a system of allocating scarce resources across a, a population. Is that an AI according to this definition? It solves some problems, but it doesn't necessarily simulate human thinking. Yeah, so I think for me, when I think of an economic system, it is a way of allocating a resource to solve human need. In this case, the artificial part of AI would be, I think, that simulation part where we do have something that's non-human. An economic system, by definition, would be human beings trying to figure out that very important problem. How do we satisfy our very human needs? Mm. And historically, we human beings have been very creative. We'll develop different ways of satisfying needs using different types of economic systems. So capitalism would be a very modern way for us to satisfy human need. 
In this case, that idea of problem solving is simulating that human ability using non-human elements. Uh, could be hardware, software, but very specifically, when we talk about generative AI, it's taking information, processing that information in a particular way to generate a new solution. And that's really the difference between generative AI and previous iterations of AI that have appeared historically. So when we talk about large language models and generative AI, I think what we've discovered, and this gets into how is AI able to be creative, it has access to uh, volumes of data and knowledge and information that we've generated uh, over generations of humans, um, you know, developing and sharing that information, has access to that information, it's able to combine that information in new and interesting ways to solve the problems we might ask of it, solve the questions we ask of it. Uh, so that's one way to think of generative AI. Mm. You're going back 70 years. What's changed? It used to be AI was this thing of science fiction, but now it's real and it's here. What changed that has now AI on the tip of mind, tip of brain, uh, everywhere, and you know, is creating real issues that we as humans have to solve? I think what changed when all of us were introduced to um, GPT-3, GPT-3.5, it was how effective that chat model was in responding to the questions we were asking it and how unexpected some of those responses were. When we use Google and some of those tools where we search for information, back when those tools were introduced, I think there was something happening that was interesting to us. We were able to find information quickly and answers quickly. With generative AI, these latest models using that large language model a solution they're generating solutions that are surprising to us as humans because we hadn't seen that before. It's not just information, it's crafting that information in a unique way, a novel way. And that's really what attracted our attentions of researchers and the creativity. So to answer your question, the models that were being developed at Google, at OpenAI, and some of these other um, organizations, I think the techniques that were being used gave them the ability to generate these unexpected responses that now is, we see as being so productive. And so in this space of unexpected, I think probably creative is one of the adjectives that would maybe come to mind. What is creativity? We have to keep this in context. You're speaking to someone who studied economics that now teaches business courses and now is trying to understand what many would consider to be a psychological phenomenon. So I see creativity as our uniquely human ability to combine resources in a novel, unexpected way that satisfies a need. So when we begin to think of different forms of creativity, whether it be art or music, whether it be a business producing a new product that's a little bit original, novel, and unique, all of those examples are us human beings creating something new based on resources that have been combined in a novel way. The official way that most psychologists understand creativity, it's an ability to create novel output that has value or usefulness. Hmm. So there are two concepts there that I think define most of the ways that we think about creativity and psychology and other disciplines. Novel output, that would be originality and an unexpected creation, but it can't be just anything combined in a different way. It has to be relevant and it has to be useful. It has to be almost practical. Okay. So why the study? What made you think, well, can AI be creative and how creative can it be? My introduction into creativity was through a program called Future Problem Solving. So during my time during the program as a student, I then became an evaluator. Um, I've been a coach. I've been someone who's developed content, always been interested in understanding creativity. And I think it's important to understand my introduction to creativity was unique. 
I was taught a process. And after I learned the process, I began to apply that in different ways that I thought were effective. So I applied it to schoolwork. I would do my homework using the process and beginning to brainstorm. And what I discovered, teachers generally like that. Not all teachers, but usually if you were to approach a project or an assignment slightly differently, uh, teachers appreciated that. And it gave you as a student a way not only to complete the assignment, but you could have fun with it. And I always love doing that. And I like to say, I think most of the successes I've had as an academic, as a professional, someone interested in entrepreneurship and starting new companies, I can trace that back to learning the creative process and beginning to apply that in new ways. So part of teaching creativity in my past, I would ask students, you know, can you think of new ideas to use a particular product, right? It's called an alternative uses task. And you can start with simple objects and we're familiar with some of the objects, right? Can you think of multiple ways to use a brick or a paperclip? And then you can get a little bit more interesting. Can you think of new ways to use popcorn? Uh, things like that. So, um, as ChatGPT came out, we all became a little bit more aware of how powerful it was. Um, my fellow researchers and I began to type these prompts into ChatGPT, and you begin to expect common responses, and then you also get excited about uncommon responses. And that's what I think is exciting about creativity, the unexpected response, right? That so you, aha moment. Yeah. So let's just break that down. You're typing into ChatGPT, what are some alternative uses for popcorn or things like that? Yeah. Tasks like that, but very simple prompts. And I'll give you one example yeah. that we typed in, and it's an imagination prompt. Imagine all children became giants for one day out of the week. What new consequences would that create? Right. So that involves thinking about a future that does not exist. It's not a reality. It's an improbable situation. So you really have to be imaginative, right? If you're a student trying to respond to that prompt. Prompts like that, and you would expect that uh, an AI engine, GPT, at that time, 3.5, might stumble on a task like that. Okay. But the responses we were seeing, uh, they suggest there's something more happening than just scraping the internet for common responses and regurgitating that information to the end user. It became clear these are unexpected, maybe novel responses. And that was part of our interest. Let's, let's put it to the test and see how original these responses are. So what would be an example of, you know, for that particular prompt, uh, an expected answer and an unexpected answer in your view? Quite often when you're being creative, you're connecting ideas that weren't connected previously. It's that idea of being, uh, you know, able to combine these different ideas to create something unique and novel. So one of the techniques that we will teach is combining an idea with other ideas. So maybe it's economics. Well, what's the economic impact of children becoming giants for one day of the week? Well, the clothes are not going to fit anymore. They're sure. going to have to buy new clothes. Yeah. It might yeah. start stepping on cars and, you know, bumping into buildings. Well, All that's going to be, right, exactly. There'll probably be psychological issues, right? So here's one of the ideas that ChatGPT uh, came up with. Well, if a student had been bullied in the classroom, now they're a giant. Oh, are they going to project that onto others? So. Again, unexpected ideas, making associations that you would not necessarily expect an AI engine to make. So let's talk about the task that you had the AI do, the Torrance test of creative thinking. What is that test? What, what is it measuring? What's its process? E. Paul Torrance, he was someone who developed a future problem uh, solving program. He spent most of his research on understanding not only creativity, but also how to evaluate creativity. And part of the assessment he developed were the Torrance tests of creative thinking. It's meant to evaluate creativity by looking for certain characteristics of creative ability. This particular set of tests are looking for three measures of creativity. 
the ability of a test taker to generate a large number of ideas called fluency, different categories or types of ideas, you call that flexibility, again, based on uh, Guilford's original research, and then the final measure that's now offered in the TTCT for the verbal tests is called uh, originality, and that would be the unexpected novel ideas that are generated by the test taker. There are other measures that some other tests look at, but those are the three measures that are offered in the TTCT. And it's given to the test taker. They get so much time to complete the tasks, and it's then evaluated by some trained scorers. And those are three measures that the scorers then compute, the fluency, flexibility, and originality. So you gave the test to 24 undergraduate students, and you also had the ChatGPT or GPT-4 take the test eight times. Is that right? Yeah, and this was after GPT-4 did come out in the spring. Okay. So we gave GPT-4 the test eight times, and that was just to validate that we were getting the correct scoring once we did send it in to be scored. And I should mention uh, the Torrance Test of Creative Thinking are scored by a company called Scholastic Testing Services, or STS. Sure. So external um, scoring of these tests, and they now own the property rights for the TTCT, so, um, yeah, we gave GPT-4. And the evaluators are blind to whether the test was executed by an AI or a student, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's why we included 24 human responses from our students here at the University of Montana. So um, GPT-4, we fed the prompts into the AI, and it generated its output. And then we uh, took those responses, and they were just transcribed by some research assistants and yes, we then included those with the human responses, sent those in scholastic testing services, and then they scored those tests and returned the results. So the method was um, run the TTCT through GPT-4 eight times, also include 24 human responses. We would then send all those results into STS. They would blind score those, not knowing which were AI, which were human. And then we just see, do we see any you know common characteristics with the eight uh, GPT-4 results that we submitted. So they can evaluate the eight versus the 24, but they can also benchmark all of the scores against the entire population of folks that have taken the test over however many years, right? And that's one reason we chose the TTCT as the benchmark for AI creativity. The TTCT is considered to be the gold standard for assessing creativity. So it's been used for decades. The prompts are updated. The databases are updated. The norms are updated but they do have tens of thousands of humans who have completed the tests and it provides some nice norms for comparing. Um, you know, in this case, our humans and also the AI results. So in our case, we were looking at college age or adult students. So the database from 2016 had about 2,700 uh, humans that had completed that test. So we were comparing our HGPT4 with that large sample of about 2,700 humans. We'll be back to my conversation with Bryce Ward and Eric Guzik after this short break. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. Hey, this is John Wicks from Def Charlie, and you are listening to A New Angle. Welcome back to A New Angle. I'm here with Bryce Ward and Eric Guzik discussing AI and creativity. Does the test exist online? Has GPT just knows the answers to this test? And that was the other reason we chose the TTCT. Scholastic Testing Services owns the IP. 
So they're very protective of the prompts. You can try to search Google for the prompts. You can even ask ChatGPT, what are the prompts in the TTCT? It will tell you it doesn't know. It's not publicly available. So this was a unique opportunity for us to feed in prompts with a very well-known test that probably no AI has access to because it is protected uh, intellectual property. And so what do you make of the results? So you said that you know the, the AI scores in the top percentile. What are the specifics of the results? So I think if we look at those three measures, fluency, flexibility, and originality, we expected generative AI to do well with fluency. Sure. We did not know about flexibility and originality. Flexibility, and that's the variety um, and different types of ideas, it didn't perform quite as well. So it's between the 93rd and 99th percentiles for the eight tests that we submitted. The most surprising result, the novelty and originality of the ideas as evaluated by these human scores at SDS. So the originality of the AI generated ideas were in the top percentile for all test takers of the TTCT. That was surprising. So what does this mean for society? I mean, I guess, you know, when I first started reading and hearing about ChatGPT and AI stuff, it was, oh, this will replace low-level tasks, but creativity will be as a... This will allow creatives to be more creative. And what you're saying is that the, the chat GPT is simply more creative than the creative. So, you know, beginning to think about what's the impact of this AI, I think that's one concern we do have, right? As those who may be creative, is it going to replace us as, you know, a creative class, uh, to use that language? And I think the way to think about this is we have to think about, about it as a disruptive technology. It's going to have a very complicated impact on all parts of the economic system and all the jobs that even those we thought were protected from you know, AI. So if it's true that AI can generate creative ideas, then it's probably going to threaten certain types of jobs. We know any type of disruptive technology also creates new industries, it creates new jobs. But what I can say, like any other disruptive technology, it's going to... Um, certainly threaten certain jobs it's going to create new opportunities and others we'd have to expect it's going to have that impact like any other disruptive technology i think it's context dependent and then how it's deployed i mean when we hear the word creativity things like art and music immediately come to mind and so we can think about the potential for an ai disrupting you know creators in those spaces but there's other spaces where creativity is enormously important is there anything we know about the Torrance test and, and sort of, is it context dependent at all where the, the creativity is, is that it measures is applicable to certain scenarios versus others? This test has been designed to try to identify general creative abilities. So we don't know how creative AI might be in more domain specific areas. Uh, because of that uh, domain general nature of the TTCT right now, I think the way we're trying to understand the impact and maybe the meaning of our results, AI is able to generate a large number of ideas, different types of ideas, and ideas we wouldn't expect. And we know that's an important part of being a creative thinker. And in this case, it's an important part of a creative system, which I think is a good way of thinking of AI. It's a system where we can generate different ideas. In terms of solving problems then, uh, one way to look at it and how we're trying to understand this is it of benefit to have more ideas rather than less? And I think if we think of it that way, if we have the availability of more ideas, different ideas, 
we can then evaluate those ideas and be part of that process of looking through. Maybe that becomes a jumping off point where we're thinking about different ways to solve a problem. But if it's generating more options for us, that itself would be a positive way of thinking of you know, this new ability that we seem to be seeing with AI. So Bryce, as we listen to Eric kind of explaining the results of the study and this notion of creativity, how does this jive with your sense of you know, the social process of creativity, putting different people from different backgrounds together and, and, and this sort of notion that in a group, the, the, the whole can be greater than the sum of the parts? Well, how groups create is, uh, is complicated, right? Yeah. It's not just about throwing people in a room. In fact, it turns out that that's actually bad for creativity, <laughs> right? You want to have people go off and think of themselves and then use the people to evaluate the ideas and pick them if I understand the research properly, right? So it's not that part that, you know, uh, concerns me as much as does this allow people to connect with each other in communities where they feel like they are a valued contributor? Hmm. Because it seems like this is taking a lot of things that humans bring to the, their communities and assigning it to capital. And if I don't own that capital and I don't have a return on that capital, you're just taking another set of things that humans used to contribute to their communities away from people. And we've already seen with automation and offshoring what that does to people who specialized in more manual labor. It wasn't good for them as humans, not just their wages, their wages went down, but it wasn't good for them as humans. And so that's my concern with AI is what does it mean to create an abundance of intelligence? Right. right. There, yeah, I can absolutely see that there's lots of benefits in terms of being able to solve problems that we currently don't have the resources to solve. But I also am concerned about what does that mean for a human? Because I think as a human, we are not simple economic actors. We're humans and we evolved in weird ways. And I think one of the things that we are hardwired to need is a community and i and i need to feel like i can contribute to that community like my what i'm offering is valuable and creativity has always been one of the higher forms of contribution to that community sure and to take it away from humans and give it to machines without any structure in place to say what do we want the humans what do we want the machines to do you know the way i look at it is we wouldn't allow a drug on the market with this much disruptive potential without testing it, without doing what you've done, without trying to figure out what does this mean for us? And I just think that, you know, we have to evaluate this not just in terms of, okay, does this allow us to, you know, there are these benefits, but we, I, I would hope at this point in our pro progress through technology, almost every big technological breakthrough that's hailed as the greatest thing ever, 50 years down the road, we're like, Oh crap, what did we do? Right? We did that with Forever Chemicals. Uh, if you live in the Northwest, you know, go have a conversation about the dams on the Columbia, right? Huge benefits. Also, big costs. Because it's one thing if it's just augmenting, you know, oh, like it helps me write my papers a little faster. But if it's just replacing a bunch of humans and mm -hmm. what they used to contribute, um, that's going to be a huge, you know, we'll get through it. But do we want to be the ones sitting there? in the new Dickensian age, which we've kind of already been in for 40 years. I, that's where I'm struggling with AI. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's a reasonable struggle. Er Eric, when you kind of consider th this landscape that Bryce describes, 
the study that you and your colleagues executed could be seen as a way to measure the potential for this tool in an economic sense, or it could be sort of viewed as a, a sort of a health and safety measure of, of the technology as well. Putting your, your results in the context of managing, of a society that's tasked with managing this, this technology, how do you kind of interpret your results? I think we knew there was something here that would provoke ways of thinking about not just AI, but creativity in new ways. And if I can be blunt, we knew if we pulled this research off correctly, something would have to give, uh, something would have to break. Either we don't completely understand creativity, maybe we're not evaluating creativity correctly, mm. or did we discover something in AI that's surprising? So what I'd like to do is just back up a little bit. I think creativity is one of those human abilities, which is interesting, but because I think we know this is such an important part of every modern economic system. I don't think we give enough credit to the creative ability in economics. But if I were to try to understand what is the modern economy, and if I had to pin it down to one thing, I think it's human beings expressing their creativity to solve a need of some kind. So we seem to like new things, and we seem to like when that creative product satisfies a need in a new and different way. With that said, creativity is one of those human abilities that's always been difficult for us to try to manage and understand. We need it, yet sometimes we don't trust it. And in, I think part of that not trusting it is we don't often understand or try to understand what it is completely. And there's this body of thought where if we try to understand creativity more completely, maybe we're going to eliminate it or, or even you know, crush it somehow. So I think part of what we knew would happen with a study like this, it would probably push us to try to understand creativity in new ways. And then if we connect it with AI, again, it would push us probably to consider what are the benefits of creativity? Can I really create uh, you know, this new and novel output? If so, what does it all mean? So in terms of you know, what does this mean? Again, I think it's, it's part of how market economies work where there is benefit, but as Bryce mentioned, there's always cost. It's both. I don't think it's overstating things to say this may be the most disruptive technology we human beings have ever developed. Why? We're not replacing manual human labor. In a way, we're simulating our intellectual abilities, and potentially we could be replacing that. Whether or not that's going to be more destructive than creative, we don't know yet, but there is that possibility and opportunity for things to play out that way. And I think like any other technology, we're going to have to figure this out and have a very open conversation about the culture, about the values, about the legal requirements, the political system that we need to manage this appropriately, knowing, as you very rightly said, Bryce, we've made mistakes in the past with new technologies. And maybe there's a reason why we sometimes don't trust new technologies and innovations as much as we think we, we could. And I think what's interesting about AI, we often look back historically to major technological changes and innovations. We often think, well, that's how did that society not realize there was so much promise with that technology? And we see that constantly through the development of economic systems. Well, here's a real-life example of, again, maybe one of the most disruptive technologies we have ever developed. We're dealing with this in real time, and I think that's why this conversation is so important. So I am now using AI within my entrepreneurship classes. It's just too powerful a tool not to use to help our students understand that creative mindset and have them develop useful ideas that satisfy need. With that said, again, we have a powerful technology. If not used appropriately and not managed appropriately, we can see there could be another side to this that we, we have to be prepared for. 
Stay tuned for part two of this conversation with Eric and Bryce in our next edition of Incentives and Instincts. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift from UM alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. With additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. Keely Larson is our producer. Ella Hall is our production assistant. VTO Jeff Ament and John Wicks made our music, and Jeff Meese is our master of all things sound. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.